In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Well, welcome back to the True Live Podcast, the Psychedelic Roundtable. We uh, we are traveling the globe here today. We got Taurus Apollo coming all the way in from the upper north in Scandinavia. We got Jason Chiman in from Colorado. We got Paul from Maui. And of course, me live from Oahu right here. I thought maybe we could just introduce ourselves for those of us who may be watching, but may not thoroughly understand who everybody is. So Tor, for the audience, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Yeah, that's always an interesting question. I'm a psychedelic um, enthusiast turned legacy forger from the mountains of Norway, trying to just create the life and the reality that I choose to have and uh, learning as much about that as I go, I guess. Yeah. Nice. Paul, maybe you could uh, send out a voice to those who are listening for you. Hey, what's up, George? What's up, Jason? What's up, Tor? How you guys doing today? Good to hear your voice, Paul. Jason, what's up with you, buddy? Man, I am uh I'm not nearly as eloquent as Tor and what I'm trying to do in life. I'm curious to learn more. Uh, but yeah, just kind of getting into the rhythms of the holidays, busyness of laying into playing on the year. Um, I kind of been out of pocket for the last couple of weeks, so I'm kind of it's good glad to be back and hanging out with you guys. Yeah, it's good to have you back. It's it's good to see everybody. And uh, you know, before the show, I was talking to Tor a little bit about this particular article that Jason had sent. And for the listening audience, there's a really interesting article, uh, and it was on the topic of virtual reality and integrating a psychedelic trip. And for those of us who are familiar with psychedelics, it's almost like it's a different reality in which you're in. So for those psychonauts out there and those who are listening, think about going through your full, whether it's an LSD trip, a ketamine, or whether it's probably for most of us like a psilocybin trip, 
Imagine what it's like to come down and you begin finding yourself in this philosophical phase of thinking about your life and trying to integrate what happened in your trip. And then imagine strapping on some goggles and going into this virtual world. You know, I'm curious, like for me, here's how I thought about it at first. And I'm curious to get your guys' opinions. You know, coming down from that trip to me is like, that's where the gold is. Like, cause that's when you begin to start making these insights, whether it's new connections that you were being formed or whether it's ideas being processed in different parts of the brain, but that's when things begin to start making sense. And so when I imagine strapping on these virtual reality goggles, it kind of blew my mind. I wasn't sure what to think about it or how it would integrate in my mind. And I, I'm kind of, I got some thoughts on it, but what, Tor, what do you think about strapping on some virtual reality goggles right when you come down from a trip? Have you ever, I'm reading Ready Player Two at the mm -hmm. moment. Yes. Yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> so, yeah. It kind of blew my mind just reading it and seeing how this could play out. And then we were talking earlier with Ben about how he has been running freaking marathons on psychedelics. And then, you know, as I, as you were talking right now, I was picturing being inside some virtual reality environment on this, this mat that you can just continue to run at and you can move your body, have the intention that Ben was talking about, just run and then have all these things appear real time as you're in a psychedelic trip. And if what he says, like he's basically, he's basically doing the work ahead of time of them popping up. Like it's not real time. It's ahead of real time, right? It's that psychedelic thing. So having that virtual reality element to it. And with what I'm now reading in Ready Player Two, I, I, I think it's a freaking super potent medicine. I, I, I can't even imagine. I would have to try it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Jason? What when you read that article, what were you thinking about? So I, I just I can't help but feel like the darker side of that energy of the ability to like get, you know, let's just say you were tripping on it the entire time and you have to go through you maybe, you know, sometimes the beginning of a trip is the letting go, the surrender that can be kind of difficult before you can release yourself to another realm. And so to basically have a pair of goggles on that takes you through that rabbit hole, whatever that difficult thing is for you to land in another world where you don't really know what's real or what's not anymore. Like you could get completely lost in that. Like you could begin to develop a second reality, um, which is the whole premise of ready player one and ready player two, which is, you know, that there's this whole virtual reality that people drop into. And, you know, maybe the way we get there is by these, this medicine really kind of taking you there. Uh, so I don't know. It scares me. Like on some levels, like, um yeah i don't know that i would ever touch it interesting paul what's your take on that kind of stuff man i mean i think it's interesting um i think it's probably more for the experienced uh you know like if you're going into this and you're relatively new at using psychedelics and i, I probably wouldn't recommend something like that but um you know if you're got a lot of experience and you kind of you know, you, you know what to expect somewhat. And yeah. you kind of worked out a lot of the kinks in previous psychedelic experiences, then I think, you know, it's probably, you know, something at least interesting in, in doing that. And I, I, it would depend on the content too. Like, you know, 
what it is you're going to be doing with those VR goggles on. Yeah. I have, I have here's a, what, here's what kind of perspective on that. Yeah. Because right now, yeah, as I'm talking about this, a friend of mine is in the psychiatric, psychiatric um, hospital after a psychedelic trip. And uh, it, it happened shortly after we met Monty. Mm. And um, it has offered me a lot of new perspectives on psychedelics and psychosis. And how a person with psychedelic experience seems to be able to communicate with someone in a psychosis because it's very similar from what I've seen so far. I'm I'm currently learning about this, but the, but the whole thing, the, the theory as to why he went into that state is because he never let his brain integrate what he learned and he didn't have any pegs to put the knowledge on from the psychedelic experience. So he hadn't, no, he had no preconceived knowledge. Which means that if you don't have anything to kind of wrap your head around these new emotions and this new mental state, then it would be overwhelming. Like Paul says, if you if you have new, fresh people doing this, it could just toss them into a completely new dark void of not understanding what this actually is. And yeah, we were talking about like, we should just uh, spike the water supply, right? And everyone should have a psychedelic experience. But that is probably one of the outcomes of that. When people don't have the experience and something to put it on, they could get into psychosis or what we conceive of as a psychosis. Yeah, that and not like if someone spikes something and you don't know you're about to trip, then you're really tripping. What the f what's happening to me? Because like you, you're not aware. You like you didn't personally take it, so you're not prepared for it like that. I'm curious about your friend. Like, were, were you there? Like, did he start tripping and then like he never came out of a trip, or or what does it look like from psychedelic experience to the hospital? Like, what happens in between there? Yeah, uh, I think this is a very valuable. I just shared the stream in in my community as well. So people have been asking, what dose? Do one have to look out for before you trigger a psychotic event or a psychosis and i'm like i don't think that depends on a dose at all it depends on the brain that is going into the experience the individual and the knowledge they have about themselves and how much experience they have with psychedelics and the christ consciousness and everything that happens when you become love right things that is inexplicable for a reason you can't really go in and, and articulate a meditation because that's too very individual so we were having this experience and everyone was doing their thing. You know, you get faced with the things, in my humble opinion, you get faced with what you need to see. And some people might have layers of the ego that is still being stripped. And because of that, that might get the focus. So we had one who kind of focused on being separated from the group. He felt like he was ostracized. He felt like he was not one of the tribe. And we had to kind of reel him in. It was like, no, 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 no. Listen here. This is a lighthouse. This is the love. This is who we are. And this is what you are for us. You are completely safe. And so we, we got him back. And um, it was a very nice experience because one of the other people did not have experience in guiding people. He, he wanted to guide people, but he didn't know how. And he just stepped straight into it. So we saw that in that case, everything was playing out fine. And then the guy who who's now in trouble trouble being very relevant uh it's because of a system that is ignorant but he was talking to me and we were talking about things that i have had many conversations about like we it's like when you can read another person's mind i just had to look at him and just have that that mystical fire pit lit face as i just yes 
right? He didn't have to say anything. I could just create everything from a knot. And he was like, oh my God, it explains everything. And I just let him have his experience. We went back to the to the cabin. Everything was going perfectly. He was going on to his own um, journey of letting go. He was able to come down into a room full of people whom two of them he just met, completely naked, squat in front of the fireplace and piss. Just release himself right there because he said he was going to see if he was able to relax to that level. And this was the same day we had gone into ice bathing and seen if we can relax to the degree where we can actually release ourselves into the ocean. And it was a journey. So when he did that, I was like, dude, as long as you clean that up, I'm impressed, right? So everything looked fine. And then we had the, um, the day after, as you say, like then that's when the insights come and you get to reflect a little bit. Everyone said that that was probably one of the three top best psychedelic or experiences in general of their life because you knew things happened. It shifted. And we cleaned up. We uh, drove two of the participants to the airport. We had a long talk in the car, me and him. Everything was fine. And then I think it went wrong when he came back to the old environment that he had been in for three years. So let's just picture that you're in a stripped out renovation object. You're in a, a living room that has nothing but concrete floors. There's nothing on the walls and you have this little fireplace and a small kitchen table and a chair to sit on and you're all alone. And you're sitting there with nothing. You're just left by yourself. And then people around you call you crazy. They have done so for three years because you talk as if you were seeing things like you are in the psychedelic experience. Love is the answer in these things, right? Without knowledge to really to stay firm or to understand that there is a balance, that even though you could do things, that doesn't mean that you should do things. But he had um, he tried to make sense of what he felt, and he started to talk about God and how he himself was a reincarnation of Yeshua or J Jesus, and that he had to share this love. And one day, he had been in a psychiatric ward before, so he said to me, like, I think I have to go and visit the hospital. I said, if that is what you think you should do, then that is probably a good idea. Because that, at, at that time, for two days, he had been really acting out and doing things and scaring the neighbors. And, you know, when people of no experience sees these things, they might act in different ways. So I went down there to pick him up. He had dressed himself in a blanket that has been reshaped as a toga. I was like, yes, that's what they were, wore 2,000 years ago. Why do you do that now? Well, because I am this. I was like, all right, fair enough. I'm not going to stop that in any way. I'm just going to... We just went into that rabbit hole together and talked, and it seemed completely normal. Other, like, beside the fact that he was dressed in a toga in November. And um, we got him into the uh, to the ward. He had been there before, so no, no challenge. The only thing that was really interesting to me is that when we got into a, um, the ER almost, like a small clinic before we got to the hospital, we had to get, kind of get him prepared for the admission. The doctor in there smelled cannabis because he had legally been prescribed cannabis for his condition. And he had a joint before he got into the office. The first thing this guy does, this professional healthcare dude, right? He raises, he gets up from the chair, gets over to the window and starts to breathe outside because he won't, he doesn't want to get high. I was like, wow, that, that tells a lot about your awareness of the topic, right? And then he, he proceeded to 
to tell, not to ask, to tell my friend. So you do realize that th this looks completely ridiculous and that you're a danger to yourself and others around you. We have to get you admitted forcefully. So right now I'm going to write up the documents and he's going to take you to that hospital. Do you understand that? What year is it? And I was like, wow. And this guy is meant to help us. So that was the first kind of uh, encounter with how the system is set up to help people with this psychosis. I said that I was going to take him in. I got this legal document that said I could restrain my friend if I had to. I was like, I don't think that is needed. Thank you, though. And then I drove him in. They, they welcomed him. They admitted him. And I thought that was it. But then two days afterwards, they just throw him, they throw him back into the environment. And it didn't take more than three days after that, I guess, until the cops were called. And it, again, it happened again. He was just picked up at his house. Same thing again. This time he was drawn in by cops and released again. And then for the third time, after a week, he got put in a restraining jacket or a, yeah, and then just put back inside again. So I see that the way the system is handling this is producing more problems than this psychosis itself. Because if they had people around them that could understand and talk their language, things would have been different. But now, as he has drug-induced psychosis, he could take, uh, he didn't take LSD and cocaine at the same time, which is stupid because you're also responsible for your own actions, right? And um, after that, we've just been observing. But to answer your question again, this was a very long-winded answer, but it seemed completely normal from inception, from everything, up until he was left alone with his own device in the same environment that created the problem in the first place, and then met with people who did not understand. Yeah, that's that's where we're at right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that's some. There's some deep rooted psychological issues there. I think whether it was the way he was brought up whether it is being all alone, whether it's not being able to integrate. Mm. But yeah, there, and it, it leaves a lot of questions. You know, I, I see what you're saying about the system not really being the most applicable solution for harm reduction. Or, or maybe, it, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that guy, the doctor has seen some crazy things and he's fearful. You know, it that's, sounds like my yeah. friend Paul always talks about people living in fear. And it seems to me that like these doctors are living in fear, maybe because they see violent outbursts or they see some things like that. But yeah, I, I think I've read somewhere that if you're going to do any sort of study, at least in these clinical trials and these trials that are happening in the United States, one thing that makes it invalidate you as a participant is if you have ever had any sort of psychological breakdowns before. Like if you if you have say bipolar disorder or you have mental illness in your family, like they won't admit you to any of their studies because there's written documentation that says that this kind of thing can't happen. Mm. So it's, it's interesting to think about. I, on some level, it, it makes me think, you know, th there are plenty of cases prior to this wave of um, psychedelics being reborn where doctors, doctors would take the psychedelics and then they felt that would allow them to understand what it's like to move around in a world of someone who may have a psychological disorder. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm. I think that, you know, the people that, sh that should be working with people that have psychiatric problems are, are people that understand that state of mind. 
Now you can't have like, you know, it, it would be, it would be irresponsible probably, or it would be silly to think that every therapist should have a psychological problem in order to help someone with that same problem. But I think psychedelics can put you in a state where you could more empathize with somebody who has a psychedelic problem. Let me, let me share a story with you guys about what happened to me. Like I took um, a while back, I took a big dose of like 18 grams and I, I like, you know, I sat down the first waves kept coming and then like I started hearing voices in my mind and, and all of a sudden it was like a reality shift. I felt as if like everything I knew was wrong, but this new information I, I was getting was right. And like, I believe like, like I believe that I was talking to some other, some godlike figure or an alien. And I started believing all these things like, you know what? It makes more sense to think that we as human beings, at least some of us are aliens. Like, how do we get to this planet? And I just went down this crazy rabbit hole of like, yeah, we, of course, we're the aliens. Of course, Jesus Christ was an alien. Like, look, like, look at these white people here. They get sunburned and like, they don't even fit on this planet. Like, we have all these diseases. We're not even from this planet. And I just went down this, I just went down this rabbit hole and I, I began going so deep. Like, I, it, it shifted and I'm like, that's the truth. And like, I believed it more than, more than, than the bookcase in front of me is made of wood. Like, that's how much I believed it. And like, I started thinking like, oh my God, it's so true. And then later in that trip, when I started coming down, what really blew my mind was how much I believed that to be true. And even to this day, I kind of still believe I'm a little bit of an alien. However, like I, it gave me this perspective of like, oh my God. Now I know what it's like to believe something that everyone else would think was crazy. So I, I have this empathy for like when I see people now that like if I see some guy walking down the street like saying something, I was like, I know exactly what that guy feels like. I bet you I know exactly what it's like to say something so obtuse that people would think you're crazy. And I think when you get to that point, that's when you're able to actually help somebody that's in that point. And that's what I mean by taking psychedelics and helping other people. So I you know, I, I think that there's something to be said about future therapy of people with psychedelics. And uh, I don't know. I, I think there's something there. But Ben, welcome to the show, my friend. Have you have you caught a little bit about what we're talking about? Oh, yeah. We were what, talking what, about this earlier today, I think. Yeah, that was a great podcast you guys had earlier, man. And we were, Tor was kind of, we were talking a little bit about uh, running and psychedelics. And he had a friend who um, ended up, you know, after taking psychedelics, ending up in a sort of psychosis or whatever the doctors call these things. But what's your take on the relationship between psychosis and psychedelics? Well, the mind's an interesting place, right? Um, and I think when you take psychedelics, you're, you know, you're putting yourself in kind of quote unquote psychosis uh, in a bit of a, you know, you're putting yourself in kind of these, these different brain states. Um, you know, the, the definition of, of classifying this guy as a, in a psychosis is just one of those clinical things that is, you know, that's when somebody acts this way, this is what we label them via the literature. And I, it, and it, it leaves a lot to be, be a lot. Kind of breaking up on us there. Mm. 
This is that? like an psychedelic experience. Yes, <laughs> the time has been realigned. <laughs> time has been realigned. <laughs> All right, that was interesting. All right. <laughs> yeah, now um, you're back. Now you sound like now a I'm back. Yeah, that was interesting. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I think you know these psychedelic experiences kind of put us into you know a state of quote unquote psychosis, where just like you were you were talking about your story, George. You know, you, you believe these things, and yeah. I think you know we've talked about this before and I've mentioned it, but belief is a dangerous word because belief is kind of, you know, you're suspending our gift of reason. Uh, and, you know, in order, you know, to in accepting something outright. And when you do that, you know, that is a psychosis by, by the definition. Um, usually, like you said, after the trip started to come back down, you kind of realigned and, you know, and then over time you integrated that experience. And then, you know, you're like, well, yeah, I still kind of, I still kind of have some feelings towards it. I still believe it a little bit, but you're not going out there and standing on the street corner and be like, right. we're all aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Except, yes. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, bringing it back is, uh, you know, integrating that process is a very important step of the psychedelic, uh, you know, uh, practice. Uh, and it, it sounds to me, and we talked a little bit about it before, is that there's just that, there's that perspective missing. And, you know, in uh, that perspective could be classified a few ways, but it also could be classified as, you know, giving back, getting back to that gift of reason and then, you know, analyzing these things, integrating that experience. Yeah. I did pick up one thing, though, that um, I want to get your opinion on that because i i also think that belief is dangerous but i also think it's one of the most powerful things one can have when creating Absolutely. yeah so if belief is a frequency or like an emotion then having that belief that this is actually true like with a cosmocentric worldview like everything is possible i am limitless and so is the universe which i am right mm -hmm. so, yeah so yeah just, i like that Something I think, though, that is worth looking at with the psychosis, and I think um, if you guys follow like Gabor Mate and some of the work that he's doing um, and really working with people that maybe, you know, are in such a state where they're no longer connected to this reality, that a lot of times it's trauma that's leading people to that place. Right. And yeah. that, you know, looking at the, the potential of psychedelics is that potential to go into that trauma. Um, and to begin to work with those addictions or whatever those strategies are that people have been trying to, to work with to handle that trauma and being able to go into those places. And, and if you're not able to come back out to, I really like the way that you said the kind of hook things, begin to build the restructure. And I think someone that, you know, has experienced psychosis could continue in that phase because the, the real healing has never really been able to take a hold in the sense of going into the trauma, going into that place. Um, and then if it, the strategy after that is to then continue to party with it or play with psychedelics in ways that are not, you know, avoiding that trauma, then that could keep you in that state of psychosis. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful powers of psychedelics, but also the, like where they can be something that needs to be seen, um, almost as therapy for people versus, you know, just experiences. Yeah. I want to try to tie that together. Like, I, I think that these two things go hand in hand, like the power of belief and trauma are intertwined. Mm -hmm. I think that someone who's been through a traumatic, whether it's a, 
being abused or, you know, any sort of traumatic thing that happened to you. I think once you find yourself in a psychedelic state, it allows you to either suspend belief that that happened or it allows you to believe another reason that it could have happened. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the, is clearing out the blockage right there, but you have to be in either a, a state of mind where you can believe something that you've never believed before, because that's what trauma seems to be is like this repeating cycle, this, yes, it's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. And you have to put yourself, and maybe that's what this belief does is it allows you to see things the way you've never seen them before, whether it's you being an alien or you know what, even though my dad did this to me, he still loved me. You know, like you, you can believe you have to, you have to find a way to believe what is possible in order to release the trauma because so many times we don't believe things or we can't believe things or we refuse to believe things and that's what leads to the ongoing cycle of trauma i think maybe those are connected what do you guys think i mean i think just one thing to that i want to hear from everyone but the idea of trauma a lot of times at its foundation level is an incomplete circuit mm. so if something isn't completed uh, that that's what creates the trauma and so the you what you have to do is go in and belief is the thing that allows you to complete that circuit because you're able to see it from a different perspective or believe something different than what that incompletion of the circuit is the story that you're telling yourself because that's all it is is you're connecting yourself to the story but yeah i totally see those two connecting yeah it's promise uh and that's the reason why a lot of hawaiians are christian and catholic Yep, complete the You know, like the spread of Christianity around the globe is all done, done in a very traumatic way. Yes, yeah. indeed. You have yeah, a lot I, of people yeah. here that are like, you know, that they ban the Hawaiian language, they ban hula, you know, they ban traditional Hawaiian practices. And if you, you know, if, if you try to, to practice any cultural things, then you know the 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 punishment was severe and then they then they glossed it all over with a bunch of missionaries and you know, christianity catholicism and all of that and now we have a bunch of hawaiians over here in hawaii that um like if you go to church every sunday i find it really odd i agree you know that that makes me wonder too like when i look at the major religions right now it seems to me like one thing that has happened Oh, David Lawrence is here too. Hey, um, hang on, hang on. Welcome, David. How are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Oh, we we are living the dream, talking about psychedelics <laughs> right now. I um... oh gosh. <laughs> don't so, ask, don't don't ask, don't tell. When it comes to me, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to share this story with you guys. Like I, when I look at a lot of the major religions right now, it seems to me that they have done away with the ecstasy and the trance, like the, the, you know, if you find yourself in a really deep psychedelic state, like there's almost like this fear, but it's like an ecstasy sometimes. Like it's this, like, like it feels so good, but it's scary in a way. And I think that that's one of the things that was previously celebrated in a lot of religions was like this, this ecstatic moment. But in today's world, that seems to be completely wiped away. Like people go into church and they, eat the Eucharist and stuff, but there's no ecstasy in these types of religions anymore. But anyways, you, ladies and, I, I wanted to say, um, for those that don't know, David Lawrence here, 
has written an amazing book. And I think we should, if, if you guys don't mind shifting gears for a moment, mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to get into what David w- wrote this book about. David, would you be so kind as to maybe introduce yourself to everybody and, and tell them a little bit about what you wrote? Sure, but before I do that, I, may I go back for a second and comment yeah, on what man. you just said? Of course. I think I, I mentioned to you in our first exchange that back in the old day when I was a lawyer, I used to represent Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey was like the, you know, the god of uh, psychedelics. For those who don't know, he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He wrote uh, Sometimes a Great Notion, which is even a better book, but it's long, so nobody knows it. And um, he was the subject of Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which, you know, uh, chronicled Kesey and his crazies running around the country in a bus taking acid. And so, and this was at the very beginning of the hippie movement, maybe even a little bit before. I think he was exposed to psychedelics while he was working at a mental hospital. Um, In any case, you reminded me that that movement, if you want to call it that in quotes, had that ecstasy. For good or for bad, you know, they were just high all the time, having a good time, rebelling in a very soft kind of rebellion against society. I say soft because they weren't protesting or doing anything violent, Um, but they were freaking people out, running around with a colored bus, yelling and screaming on the top, blasting the Beatles or whoever they were blasting. And um, and and he became an icon of that kind of uh, and, and so what I was getting up to it is um, in some sense, you could think of it as a religious movement. Uh, you know, they had their own. It was freedom. It was sort of bucking authority and a bit and creating a new re- religion where ecstasy and freedom and uh, self-expression was was the core of it. So yeah. you just reminded what you'd said about ecstasy reminded me of Kesey and the Pranksters, and we had uh, his group was called the Merry Pranksters, and and we had talked about it earlier. Okay, so saying that part right there, like this is so relevant, uh, David. Tor's good friend, Tor, Tor has Tor knows a gentleman who, Tor, have you read the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? No, no. Okay, I'll send you a copy. It's it's phenomenal. Blow your mind. But in this story, it's about a gentleman that ends up in a mental hospital. And he's wicked smart, and he ends up kind of outmaneuvering all the all the people in the hospital. And it's I have to bring this up, Dave, because Tor was just telling us about a friend who ended up in a mental hospital, and the doctor seemed a lot like the nurse in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the way they admitted him. And you know, it, it's just it's it's a it's hey, Tor, can you can you tell David a little bit about what happened when you just maybe rehash the story about when you brought your friend into the hospital and what happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, after we got back from the psychedelic trip where everything looked normal, every, everyone had normal experience, quote-unquote normal, um, he started to go back to uh, his previous patterns of psychosis. He had been in a drug-induced psychosis before when he thought he was Yeshua or Jesus and felt like he had to proclaim the message to everyone because he didn't have the knowledge to really understand what he had gone through. So he was trying to make sense of whatever he was feeling at the moment. And then that happened again after this last psychedelic trip. And when he was admitted, they basically branded him as a crazy person who was a danger to himself and others. And I was bestowed upon me a, um, a piece of legal document that allowed me to restrain him if possible or if necessary. And I just think that the whole way of dealing with it after he actually went away from his desk to avoid him 
avoid smelling cannabis because he didn't want to get high in his presence because my friend had just smoked joint before he got in and the doctor just avoided him as a plague. And it just really painted the picture of the ignorance that waits on the other side of the system, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you have to read Cuckoo's Nest then. I mean, this, this book yeah. was written for you and your friend. Yeah, I have to. <laughs> it, you're going to love it. It's a movie Speak as well. It's a very popular movie that uh, fairly faithful to the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, I think it was Jack Nicholson that played the the lead character as well. Yeah, it was indeed. <laughs> yeah, I have to that see it again because I don't have. I didn't have my understanding of the things that I have now when I saw that the first time. It's it's fascinating to me to hear Tor tell that story and then have David come on and talk about the merry pranksters. <laughs> like, that's so crazy to me. But speaking of books, David's David's written an amazing book. I haven't read it yet. I've only read a little bit of the blurbs and stuff. But can you maybe? Can you fill us in, David, on what this is about? I wrote a book about free will in the spirit of the Merry Pranksters, I suppose. It started when I read a book by uh, Sam Harris, who wrote a popular book called Free Will. Uh, And his book mirrored the prevailing view that everything we do is determined. We don't have any choice. We're biochemical robots, as he put it, and uh, which I stole as the title. And uh, everything we think, everything we do, is situated in a causal chain. It's a chain of causes because before that cause, before that cause, it goes all the way back to the Big Bang. And um, I read the book and I, I it just sort of said, what? And and then I didn't find the arguments compelling, but I, I was willing to do some exploring and I decided to write an article on it. And the more I explored, the article became bigger and bigger and ultimately it became a book. It's not just about Sam Harris, it's about determinism. He makes some arguments that I address, a half dozen arguments, but it's, you know, most scientists looking at reality as physical reality, sort of where it comes from the determinist point of view, they're all determinists. And, um, uh, you know, you go on the internet and you'll find, you know, 90, 95% determinists and maybe one or 2% uh, free will guys or gals. And, the arguments against uh, free will are just uh, just don't stand up. And I thought it was time somebody just said uh, these arguments don't work and showed why. So it's not so much a book that proves free will, but it's a book that says you, determinism is, is a, an unsubstantiated, uh, illogical fantasy of a theory. Um, other than that, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so I go through a bunch of arguments to show why it doesn't make sense. There's scientific arguments, there's linguistic arguments, there's uh, historical arguments. Um, and um, these arguments aren't addressed by determinists. They, they're just ignored. And um, so I thought it was time to throw a punch or two on behalf of free will. Although again, I'm, I'm sort of agnostic, I'm leaving it open. I'm just saying, hey, you guys, and gals, just one or two gals too, um, answer these arguments and then you can talk about determinism. Don't ignore them, answer them. Maybe you have an answer, but you can't credibly argue that we're robots and that we're just following our program unless you answer these questions. And so um, that's sort of the big schema of the book. I like it. Anybody want to take, take a shot there? Well, I'm on the same page. Any determinist, take your best shot. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not deterministic. No, I. 
I, I, I come from my school of thought on it is, is that, you know, um, the infinite sea of possibilities that exist out there. Uh, so everything can happen, has happened. Um, but the navigation of that path and how we how we utilize our free will, our freedom of choice uh, is a very unique thing and something that while you don't necessarily have free will, ultimate free will, um, we are constrained in our choices via, you know, our, our previous experiences, um, what we're built on, you know, uh, what sort of indoctrination we received as children, um, what sort of traumas we've experienced in life. Uh, and so those are, you know, they shape our our possibility, our, our, our probability of choice. But ultimately, I think that there's an infinity of potentiality and that probability is an amorphous thing that we can, you know, through conscious effort and through walking down, you know, the path, uh, we can then expand our freedom of choice and gain more and more free will as we navigate this world. Well, what you just addressed was the first argument in the book, and it's called the absolutist uh, view of free will. You said that we're influenced by a lot of things, um, our, our indoctrination, our background, our education, our parents, our culture, uh, economic circumstances. One of the, the first arguments in, in, in Harris's book is that in order to have free will, we would have to completely control, those are the words, completely control everything that determines us, okay? gravity, stars, the Big Bang, um, our parents, our economic back, being born into the world where and when we were. And what you were just saying is, 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 is really the, the most common sense and rational version is, look, it, free will is an absolute. I'm going to say in slightly different words exactly what you said conceptually, which is that we have all these influence. We don't have, I think you may have said absolute or complete free will. We function within circumstances. Circumstances are limitations. You know, we can't jump 10 feet higher. Usually most people can't. Um, with gravity being what it is, your body being what it is, your education being what it is, all this stuff is influences. And, and, um, and uh, determinists seem to confuse influence with causation. It's no argument as far as I'm concerned to say we have influences. It doesn't uh, uh, limit, sorry about that. Um, it doesn't limit free will. As a matter of fact, we argue that free will has to have limitations. It has to have circumstances. It only functions within limitations and boundaries and limits and constraints. It has to. That's what it pushes against. That's what provides the alternatives because you can go right or left because you don't, you can't go straight or down and you can go right or left. That's the circumstances you're confronted with. You can't change that doesn't mean you don't have free will. It means that we operate within circumstances. So that was the first argument that I made in the book and you just, just made it as well or better than I did. Well, I also wrote a book called No Absolutes. So <laughs> we're batting from a pretty similar page, I have a feeling. Exactly. And the thing is this argument that there, there is no argument that free will has to have complete control. He just assumes it. If you don't have complete control, you don't have free will. Why? He never says why. He never gives an argument. He never says what his premises are. In fact, that's the premise. You have to have complete control. Well, okay. It, you might want to try some argument or explanation or evidence or what your thoughts are. And maybe he has some, but, but the book presumes it. 
Um, that was argument one. I have any other of, of a number of them, but but I want, want you guys to also, you know, go where you want to go. I think that there's a um, it's obviously I would never say all, but it seems that a lot of determinists. It, it's, it's just my opinion. It seems to me that a lot of determinist people have like maybe a lot of guilt or something for being in a position that they don't feel that they should be in, you know, whether it's, whether it's having so much or whether it's not having enough, but it seems that like, it's a very clever excuse to, to tell yourself why you are where you are. Oh, well, this is just, this is how it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? It, it does, it allows you to escape the choices you've made, whether good or bad. And I think that when you start peeling back the onion, I know a lot of people that are like, they tell themselves this thing, like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, this is how it has to be. Well, it, is that how it has to be? Or are you a product of all the decisions you've made? You know, and I, I think that that seems to be something that I see in a lot of people that have a deterministic point of view. Have you, have you guys seen something like that? Oh, yes. Well, first of all, in the terms of the guilt department, I don't believe in, in determinism, but I have a whole hell of a lot of guilt. So I just want to say it's not monopolized. <laughs> guilt is not. Determinists don't have a monopoly on free will. That's what I want to say first. I, and I can prove it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is, oh, well, let, let, let me back up for a second. I think what you said isn't true with most of the smart, intelligent, educated people who are arguing against free will. And what, how I think of it is they're not really determinists. They're determinists in their heads, but they're very smart, educated, rational people who get up and say, what am I gonna have for breakfast? Which pair of pants should I put on? What are my favorite socks? And, and it's just one decision after another. Nobody lives like a determinist. So in their heads, they've got a framework that they uh, believe in as to how reality works at some deep level. But they don't believe in it if you, in terms of going about their lives, you can't. Um, so they're of two minds. And most of the, the determinists who are speaking about it, including Harris, are very you know, bright, moral, decent people. They seem to be very decent people. And they have a real problem when it comes to morality because if everything is determined, all of our thoughts are determined, then nobody's, in our actions, nobody's responsible for what they do and they have a hell of a problem when it comes to morality. That's a whole another section that, that, that we could talk about. Um, but I also have uh, an analysis about how they have it both ways, how determinists talk out of both sides of their mouth. You know, one minute, you know, we're determined by robots and the next minute you have to, we have to uh, take criminals off the streets. So we have to choose how we're gonna do that and choose who's guilty and all of that kind of stuff. So, so um, um, I do think the part of what you said that I think rings true for the future is that if you imagine that everybody was, was from grammar school on told that they were determined and that you told all the kids that their behavior was not their responsibility, that they had no hand in it. And uh, uh, it, it is a ready-made excuse for misconduct completely. And I think that's one of the points that was in what you were saying. Um, in terms of the responsible educated adults who are arguing against determinism, they don't live like determinists. They think, they think that there's some way to justify moral principles 
even though we're robots. There isn't. And I make very clear that this is fancy dancing and nothing else. If we're not responsible for what we do, there's no personal responsibility. And there's no morality if, if every moral principle we ever think we have is a thought that's planted in our brain by mechanical causes going back to the Big Bang. So all of them do some fancy dancing and complete um, uh, leaps of illogic to try and justify morality and responsibility because they don't want to get rid of it. They're decent people. They don't want to get rid of it. But it's, but it's probably the biggest thorn in, in determinism's side. How can anyone be responsible if they, if they can't control their actions and they can't control their thoughts? They can't. And that's kind of bled into society at large too, right? Um, you know, we have this grand appeal to authority you know, yeah. if you're, you know, if you're a kid and you get in an argument, you don't settle your own argument. You go tell the teacher, you go tell the principal. If, you know, we, it, it, every seeming instance and iteration of levels of moving up in society, there is always this appeal to authority, appeal to authority, appeal to authority. And I, it, so it's interesting how this is kind of also bled into the kind of the zeitgeist of the Western world. Yeah. So from the scientific point of view, the authority is a physical universe, a physical universe that works by causal laws. Even though quantum and other aspects of science have said that's not exactly the case. It's not. And that, that's a whole other discussion. But um, uh, I think the authority is science and the scientific method. And uh, I mean, what's behind that zeitgeist um, and that it's a physical universe and that mental mental events and consciousness sort of have a back seat, you know, can't explain them, can't see them, can't the uh, measure them. Absolutely. To the detriment of society at large, really. I mean, you know, we were just told to believe the science, which is counterintuitive to what science actually is. Um, but that's the same train of thought, right? You know, it's it's that physical universe kind of, oh, this is the science, this is how it is. Uh, and, yeah, I think it's a fascinating thing. I, I, I agree with you. I'm pretty sure probably 100%. I haven't read the book yet, but I'd love to yeah. read it here soon. Maybe you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's really fascinating to me, and I, I don't understand the, the science side, so I'm, I'm, I'm adequate on that front. But what's fascinating to me is the correlation to the religious side of things. That religion, and specifically Christianity and science, are like at least these arguments of determinism and then in the religious world of predestination are very much the same argument. And what's interesting is to think about two institutions that have gotten so ingrained into their dogmas that they now basically mirror each other and the rest of us are waking up and being like yeah no both sides of that stuff is bullshit and it's time to start going this new way and yeah but both institutions are crashing the religious yeah. institutions are breaking the scientific institutions mm -hmm. are breaking and something new will emerge yeah it's the combining of both of, oh it's a unity basically well there's there's another tradition though in which uh, uh, Judeo-Christian thought is anti-science because God gave us free will. And if you yeah. look at a lot of the free will websites and uh, podcasts, um, a lot of them are Christian websites. Mm. Yes. Um, they champion free will. So within some framework, I understand what you're saying. Um, there's a 
but it's it, but but you can't put the same hat on all of religion because there's a huge core that champion free, free will now they don't they do it for a specific reason that god gave us free will and that's part of you know we have to learn make mistakes and so forth so there's an agenda behind it in a sense but if and you can right. agenda they're the ones who who write books not, not the only ones but they write books and talk all the time about free will and the first show I went on was a Mormon show. I was like, wait a second. And then, and then I realized that, yes, you have to equate free will with a huge tradition, a, a huge religious tradition, you know, with a caveat that they're coming at it, not from a scientific point of view, but a theological point of view. Do you think at some point in time, like it seems to me that if, if the head, the people that seem to be in charge of science as it is now seem to be determinist and it seems you have people like sam harris and probably some other really intelligent people that are seem to have the the reins in their hand and if we look at the schools now i'm gonna when I, my daughter goes to a school and and you know everything is is kind of tracked and traced and databased so it seems to me that if we continue to go down the road of determinism and we look at education moving the way it is I could see a bridge there where like, oh, this child has always been very moral. Therefore, they'd be a good judge. I, you know, I can see us continuing to move down this deterministic road. Do you think if we if we don't push back on this, that we could find ourselves in in a in a future that is really focused on determinism? Sure. That's a good point. That's a good point. You know, they've done studies that I mentioned that um, that they have people read determinist and free will literature and then they give them a test and they tell them that there's a glitch in the test and they can cheat if they look at this page but don't look at this page and they set things up like that and as you'd imagine those who now these uh, who who are read the determinist stuff are, are, are the ones who cheat and who well, what the heck you know i'm gonna i was determined to do it anyway and that's the sense in which it's a ready-made excuse and and the ones uh who are primed on on free will are more responsible and there's other tests about how uh, determinist beliefs uh encourage anti-social conduct there has to be a big footnote which is these, these tests are done in artificial conditions and there's not been a lot of them and there's not a lot of subjects and people debate about well did they really uh read determinist doctrine or fatalistic doctrine and they're also based on a narrow i mean these aren't people like the scientists who've thought about, the well, philosophers who've thought about this a lot, these are people who are just being exposed to some momentary influences. So there's a lot, there's a big footnote about how you can rely on it. But, but in terms of common sense, it, it goes back to what you said. You could imagine if you think that we're robots and you start treating us like robots, you're talking about a different world. And if you start teaching kids from grade school up that they don't have anything to do with their actions, no matter how bad or heinous or destructive or antisocial their behavior is, you're going to get a pretty different world than what we have now, which is part of the reason why I think it's, this subject is important. In your research, have you done in your research in, in looking at these two things, have you done any research? Are certain cultures more deterministic than other cultures or is there any sort of like link there? No, I haven't. I haven't. I imagine that the, those that are based on a scientific, you know, post enlightenment rational kind of a base 
would tend to have the deterministic scientific point of view, although there's a, a, always a current otherwise in all of these cultures, and there's a current otherwise in ours. And there's many scientists who don't support the deterministic point of view. They're just uh, uh, losing the demographic battle right now um, and the control of the airwaves, so to speak. There's a lot of people who, uh, Einstein didn't believe in the, uh, well, he's a mixed bag a little bit because he went back to the classical version and said, I don't believe in this whole probable thing. And uh, in a certain sense, I'm simplifying. Um, so he was a determinist in, in a sense, but he was a scientist. There's a lot of scientists who weren't. One of the guys who proved one aspect of his theories wrong was named John Bell. He was he he, he made a choice. He said there was a choice between free will and certain axioms that he tried to prove wrong in, in uh, quantum theory. So there's many scientists out there who uh, who who do believe that they're just the minority. They're the is silent it, minority currently. Is it possible that maybe instead of it being an either or, it's kind of a both and? Like it seems like in some in some ways we are determined to age and get old and die. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but there are small things we can change. Is there is there is there like a medium, like a like a both and like yes, we are deterministic here, but we can we can tweak it a little bit. Yes, I mean, th- there's two ways to answer your question. There's a school of thought called compatibilism. And oh, compatibilists yeah. say that the free will and determinism just go together. But that's another, a lot of fancy dancing in which they have to change the definition of free will and uh, play with that a bit. And, uh, and uh, it, 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 ultimately, it's self-contradictory. If you take the free will that most people mean, the common sense view that, that, that we have a choice and that consciousness uh, has alternatives and we can make a, a, an impression on the world by which choice we make. Uh, and regardless of the circumstances we're in and regardless of the configuration of subatomic particles in our arms and brains and everything else, apologies for that. Um, but if we, oh, it's the watch, sorry. <laughs> These days you have to say, is it the watch? Is it the phone? What is it? Um, or the fridge. Or the what? <laughs> or the fridge. <laughs> or the fridge or the microwave. My, my microwave um, uh, uh, goes off and uh, does that beep. In any case, apologies for that. Um, where were we? Tell me, tell me what the thread was, the chain was. I lost it. You were at... Uh, Comparing free will and determinism. Oh yes, compatibilism, right. So, so there, there is a school called compatibilism and they have different definitions, but they fiddle with the definition so that free will and determinism can work, basically. If you define free will in the most vigorous, robust sense of common sense, we make decisions uh, within some parameters with a lot of structure and influences and we influence the world and the world changes because we make decisions. And that's called libertarian free will. Um, compatibilism doesn't include libertarian free will because the idea is that no matter where the physical universe is, no matter where the subatomic particles in our body are, in our brain, and the the neurons firing in our brain, we can make a decision that changes things, changes the future, changes physical reality. That's the libertarian view. Determinists can't deal with that because it 
you can't put that together with a physical universe that functions by way of causation. So by switching definitions, there's a compatibilist definition. But the other sense in which you used it was in terms of influence. We, we make choices, but there are aspects that are determined of us. Sure, sure. I mean, there are aspects of our liver, if we drink too much, that will give us a determined result, uh, or at least a probable result. Mm -hmm. And if we take poison, it will probably give us a determined result with very few probabilities. So sure. But, but, but it goes back to the first argument that Mr. Wizard made, which is that we have influences, and that doesn't mean that influences quelch free will. It's the opposite. Free will needs influences and structure and resistance to push against and make choices. Quite the contrary of the absolutist position. One thing I wanted to mention, if, if, if nobody has any questions about that, there's a there's a, a core flaw in the heart of determinism and nobody talks about it. No determinist talks about it. Uh, Noam Chomsky has mentioned it. He's not a determinist, but he's mentioned one of the few people who's mentioned it at all. And then there's um, a guy who uh, I'm blanking on his name, who, who made the uh, theory uh, famous by saying of uh, postmodernists who, who say that there's no such thing as truth and everything is relative um, he said, well, wait a second, isn't that a truth? Isn't that relative also? And so he, he uh, came up with uh, a way of looking at things. He didn't really come up with it, but he, he started applying something called, um, it's a contradiction where, called a performative contradiction, where what you say, when it has to apply to you, and if it applies to you, it negates any kind of truth about what it's saying. So, so, you know, the, the classic examples of is everybody's a liar. Well, if everybody's a liar, then I'm a liar. And if I'm a liar, then you can't trust the truth of everybody's a liar. Another <laughs> kind of like very similar postmodernist things. And I give some examples of these common things. Um, you know, nobody knows anything. Well, sounds like you know that. Right. <laughs> so, somebody knows something and so what you're saying is false nobody knows anything is false so there's a whole category of um, claims called performative contradictions they contradict themselves because they can't be applied to the person who's making them without um, falsifying themselves Nobody talks about this, but as I said, except Chomsky and this, this, and I'm, I'm sure there's some that I didn't run across. Um, but determinism is a bunch of self-contradictory claims that break this rule. They break this logical rule. And the simplest way to see this is, is, is to look at the claim, my thoughts are determined. My thoughts are due to causal force. Now, if you say that, the problem with saying that is you're saying that you're believing that not because it's true, not because you went out and found out about it, not because you investigated it. It's true because you are caused to believe it by forces you don't control. So every determinist is in effect saying um, my thoughts are determined and and um, uh I don't have any say in them. I don't know if they're true or not. It's what I'm being made to believe. So the answer is the same as nobody knows anything. Well, if your thoughts are determined, you were determined to think that. 
how do you get out of that circle? <laughs> you know, it's illogical. It's 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 contradictory. And and you don't hear any of these guys talking about it, or these gals. Um, and um, it's it's a critical point. Another way to look at it is that if we really are biochemical robots, and that's the title of the book, what are we really biochemical robots? And I took that phrase from a determinist book, biochemical robots, we may be living, but we're following this completely programmed deterministic path um, of our molecules and our atoms and uh, our systems and everything else. So if you, if, you, if you follow it through, it's really about truth. If you say that we're determined, then there is no truth because every belief you have came from something that you didn't control something that you had no choice, you couldn't investigate it, you believe it because no other reason than you're made to believe it. And if you say, well, I investigated it, I went out and I did tests and I took notes and I, all of that stuff, the answer is every single one, every single thought you had while you were doing that was determined according to a determinist who does all this. So they believe in the facts that they're determined to believe in they believe in the conclusions that they're uh, compelled to accept by causal forces. So there is no truth. So they undermine truth, just like the claim, nobody knows anything. Um, you know, all of our thoughts are based on causal force. Is like saying none of them are true. You can't know anything that's true. If I say it's true that we're human beings, that's a th uh, under determinism, mm. that's a thought that we believe because we were caused to believe it. Maybe we are, maybe we're not. It's just what we were caused to believe. So they take the whole truth out of the equation, except for their own, because that's the contradiction. When they say all of our thoughts are the determined, they're saying that from a place, they're making a truth claim. So David, truth claims are, go ahead. Well, I'm, just, I'm really curious to get like to the, the why so, like, wh why go through all of these mental um, acrobatics to deny truth? Is this a, a reaction to the religious structures of 100 years ago and, and God over religion? And they said, fuck God, fuck truth. We're just going to go down this thing and, to, you know, kind of create all of this mental, you know, acrobatics to, to not accept truth. Like, why? Why go this far? I don't think they're aware of it. I really don't think they're aware of it at all, that what they're saying is, is, is self-contradictory, like uh, everybody's a liar. Um, I don't think they're at least bit aware of it. In one um, um, video, I believe someone asked Harris about that argument as they're leaving at the end of a Q&A, and he, he throws out very tentatively, uh, I, I never understood that argument. I, I don't know. And I don't think he meant he didn't understand it in the intellectual stance. I think he, he was saying, I didn't, I don't understand that there's any merit to that argument. That, that's what I took him to say, but he didn't address it. And I guess he brushed it off, although it was the end of the show. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. The only one, as I say, who's really said something fun about it and really just nailed it on the head is, is Chomsky, and I quoted him in the book. This is a paraphrase of what he says. He says, if you're really a determinist, what are you doing out there talking about it? Why are you trying to convince anybody of anything? You know, they'll believe it or not based on what they were determined to believe. 
Um, you can't do anything to make them believe it. Uh, what you're saying to them has been predetermined. So you don't even have a choice but to believe it. Um, why don't you just go to a ball game? <laughs> yeah. In the determinist argument, do they ever talk about who is the one that determines it? Like, wh where does the determination come yeah. from? Yeah, cause, uh, physical events, <laughs> causal forces, um, uh, uh, acting under the laws of physics, <laughs> molecules, quarks, <laughs> atoms, electrons, the, the whole shebang of um, physical reality. Reprogrammed to just happen. Well, the Big Bang happened, and then everything scattered, and everything scattered in accordance with strict causal laws is, is the idea. So everything that happened uh, was meant to happen because that's the way the force was thrown by the Big Bang. And then determinists have to allow in probability and randomness because of quantum science and so forth. But the argument is, well, that doesn't help free will because we can't control randomness. We can't control probability. There's some questions in there, by the way. It's not, it's not so obvious when you start digging in there. But, um, but that's, the, that's the mythology. The Big Bang happened, everything rolled out from there in a causal deterministic way following the laws of physics. I think that's a gaping hole in science too, is like, just allow us this one miracle of the Big Bang and then everything happens. Like they, they, yeah. they have to base it on a miracle the same way like God is a miracle. Like they, they just say that this is science, but just give us this one miracle and then it works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Well, and, and, and by the way, it, it's in dispute whether there was a Big Bang. I know, right? scientists. There's the big bounce and there's something called a steady state theory. So, you know, I mean, uh, scientists don't even agree on how the universe began because because at the end of the day, they can't they can't see it. They can see some evidence of it and then they have to interpret it. So there's this questions whether there was a big bang or not. But whether there was or wasn't the determinist myth is whatever it was, it threw out, you know, the cosmic um, dust of everything in a way that followed the laws of physics, which also has its problems because um, Einstein in relativity said that at the Big Bang, it can't follow the laws of physics. And uh, some people think that that's what's wrong. One of the things that's wrong with relativity theory and other people uh, believe that there is something other than the present laws of physics in the conditions of, of, of cooling and all of that stuff that we now live in that there is something else, which is also a problem for causation. Well, you know what? I want to talk about truth for a minute because I'm not sure that like anything, I'm not sure how to interpret truth. I think things can be true enough that they work, but I'm not sure that things can be absolutely true. Is that kind of a weird thing to say or does that make any sense? No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, it, it, it sort of depends on how you define truth. And in what kind of context do you mean it? Do you want to say a little more about that? Or? Well, yeah, like it just, my truth may not be Tor's truth, even though we see the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, but like mm -hmm. A squared plus B squared equals C squared is true enough that it works, you know, but it may not work in a different mm -hmm. planet or it may not work in a different mm -hmm. atmosphere mm -hmm. or a, with some different, you know, a different environment, but it mm -hmm. works well enough for me to believe it. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that, just the terminology we use when we're trying to discuss complex problems is in fact a problem. You know, it's like nothing is true, but it's, it's true enough. And I, 
I don't think science can even get there. Like science refuses to believe things that are. I, I don't know. I, I get I get hung up right there. Like I, it's it kind of yeah. Because what I've seen is from what you just said is like you have an ultimate truth within the certain environment of that truth being a thing, and then you know, do you have an ultimate truth for everything that is in the cosmo in the cosmos, right? So there's, as you said, it depends on the definition and how you see truth and in what area of truth. Gravity is truth on Earth. But it, for me, love is the cosmocentric truth of the universe. So it's kind of in what area do we think of it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But be careful. Don't say that there kind of is no truth because that's a truth. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. Contradiction. That's the that's the postmodernist move. You know, everything is subjective. There's nothing right. truthful. Yeah. Well, really, how do you know that? That that's an interesting thing to say, since you're telling us what's true about things. Yeah, um, it's like, but it's like what we talked about earlier, like with religion, and this is is really fascinating because as the conversations carried on, more and more steps to whatever I was thinking just added upon itself. Psychedelics opened up everything for me, quantum physics, everything. Like just seeing the universe as limitless instead of this is just something that I'm a part of. Mm. And then, you know, you see the matrix and the Bible both being kind of the same container of an absolute truth. It depends on how you see that. Like, do you see that as the Bible being the force and the creator? Neo being the, the limitless creator and architect of whatever he is in? And then instead of seeing that you are able almost to do the same thing. Like if I was to watch The Matrix, I can step out of that box, see myself as limitless. And if I want to jump 10 feet high, I can't do that in my absolute biological form, but I can invent some prosthetics that's going to catapult me, right? Humans couldn't fly before until we thought about how to create the things that got us there. So in that sense, being free thinking and being able to create everything we can do so if we step out of the absolute box that it's situated in. Because in the Bible, you have rules. But if you believe in the universe that the Bible is situated in, and just everything being limitless, then you have more of a... Everything mm -hmm. is up to whatever you think is going to be created. And then that's how you go about things. Limitless. As also Ben said, like everything is just... I, I subscribe to the same idea that everything is just a limitless sea of opportunities and cosmocentric kind of there is no limit to anything. Hmm. Yeah. I use the uh, matrix. It's a good, I call it the causal matrix because it's a good metaphor for the determinist world. Yeah. The only problem is that, and a lot of people say we're in a matrix, right? You hear that a lot. Um, hmm. It's a, all of a virtual uh, uh, experience we're having. Problem is that if you're in a matrix, you can't say that. It's just like determinism. It's just like determinism. It's like, well, I'm being forced to believe that if I'm in the matrix. Hmm. So yeah. how do there's there's no truth. So if you, you take it literal as no the program. The matrix. Yeah. For me? If you take it, it literally as if like the matrix is a simulation. But if you take yes, it to that, the, that, like, that's the sense in which I was using it, yes. Yeah, exactly. But if you have like these choices, right? Do you want to think freely? Or do you want to stay in the <laughs> in the box, right? Then using the matrix as kind of the vehicle of communicating communicating the point is just brilliant. Mm. If people yeah. stop seeing the thing, like the, the literature as the absolute truth, or the movie as this is just how it is, there's nothing more to it. Until they make a sequel. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I was going to say, shout out for you having a red and blue pill. Just I've had these conversations a lot. I was asked to define truth recently. And I, it, what I came up with was uh, truth is a relative judgment that aligns with perceived reality. Can you say that again? Truth is a relative judgment that aligns with a perceived reality. Hmm. And that's your relative judgment. <laughs> it is, it is. Yes. But without access to all information over all time, I can't make mm -hmm. an absolute judgment of truth. So it becomes you know what you know. Yeah. Judgment. Yeah. Beautiful. What do you it's like Darwin? You know, this, Darwin this, no, go ahead. No, we talked about this earlier. It's like science level one up until science level unlimited. What we ha we have no idea. But Darwin didn't have a DNA sequencer. So he knew what he knew with the things that he had at the time that he had them. So, I, I yeah, I agree 100%. Well, you can uh, agree with Darwinism and agree with everything you said on the spiritual basis. I mean, I, again, it's a, it's a matrix of influence that we have these bodies that may have developed along scientific lines, not just scientific lines. You can argue that there's spiritual aspects that, 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 that had a biofeedback into that mechanism. Uh, but, but but a fair amount of Darwinism you can believe and 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 still uh, consider it an influence, not something that determines us. Something been that I don't know if this analogy works with your definition fully, but I feel like on some levels it could. I heard a teacher one time describe truth as basically we have absolute truth, which is effectively like a ball that sits in the center and we have second tier truth, which is all of our perceived realities of that ball. And while you can only see your tiny little sliver, there's no way that you can connect to all the other understandings of truth. And yet they all are observing the same absolute truth. The problem with that, which is sort of an absolute subjectivism kind of point of view, is that she's standing somewhere outside all of that to say that here's what it's all about. You're, you've got all these balls of truth. Where she's getting that truth from? Right. If you say that that's another ball, uh, then she's just another ball, and another ball opposite is going to say, "No, we we don't have all these balls. There's there's a different truth." So that's again, it's very sometimes hard to see these things. Um, if you start looking at every, uh, the performative contradictions, you find you'll you'll never stop. You know, um, but she's making an absolute truth claim. There's all these different balls and their subjective orientations. Well, then she's just undermined her own claim when she applied, because it has to be applied to herself. And that's what a performative contradiction does. It messes up the speaker when they say something that has to apply to themselves that negates the truth of what they're saying. So she's saying, well, what, she's not in one of those balls? Because if she is, then everything she's saying is just another point of view. There's another ball. I think that is the point, though, is they're saying there's only one ball and everybody is observing that singular ball. So right. I have my perspective of that ball. You have your perspective, but it's the same ball that we're perceiving. It's not everyone's relative truths. No, I understand that. Right. So she's saying it's all relative. And that, that's that's one of the contradictions that I point out in in talking about these things. If you say everything is relative, then you're saying your own point of view is relative. And if your own point of view is relative, then it's not true. It's only true if you're taking that point of view. Mm -hmm. So it's a circle. 
um, it, 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 it's sort of a radical kind of subjectivism that she's talking about. And the answer to her is like, well, okay, that makes sense. And it's certainly true that we bring so much subjective influences to how we look at things. And those subjective influences, I think the truth of what she's saying is that those subjective influences are much bigger than we think, right? And, and they lead to different perspectives on reality and they lead to different conclusions about truth. There's no question about that. But at the very root of things, she can't say that as a truth because it's just another relative position if that's what her point of view is. Um, it's not, she's negating her own truth very much like the determinist who says, my thoughts are caused, you know, I just believe it because I've made to believe it. They never put it that way, by the way, but I'm, I'm conceptualizing exactly what they're saying. Yeah. I want to throw this out. Like, so it seems to me like, for some reason, I'm thinking about Copernicus and how, you know, when someone said the world, when we're not the center of the universe and people get locked up and stuff, the, the prevailing idea was, you know, it, it was it was life changing for the world to wake up to this new idea. And it seems in today's world that most people seem to be determinists. Might there be a radical shift forward for all of humanity? if all of us begin to understand that we're not determinists, might it be the same type of paradigm shifting that happened when Copernicus came out with insights? Mm. Like I, what would the world look like? And I think it would look a lot better. Mm. I would say that a lot of the problems we have now are because of determinist thinking. And it's mm. like this small, narrow mindedness. It seems like what if we are the beginning green shoots of this more creative way of thinking? Like can anyone maybe begin to think about what the world would look like if less people were deterministic thinkers? Boring. Radical personal responsibility. <laughs> yes. Right? You know, <laughs> uh, I think determinism, like, like we've been talking about, you know, it removes a lot of that personal responsibility from, from this situation. So now if all of a sudden people were, you know, had just a different philosophy, a different look at this, now, you know, you have to take responsibility for your actions because your actions do have a, an effect on the world. And that kind of, you know, that kind of mindset, I think, is something that's very important. I think we actually, you know, these conversations are propelling that, that, that process forward. But I think we're moving to that as a society because the determinists appeal to authority, con the control mechanisms that that then, you know, sets up. Um, we're seeing that system fracture at scale. It doesn't work. And so I think, you know, there is a grand search being undertaken, you know, a hero's journey of humanity, if you will. Uh, and I think that's that's the path we're leading towards. And, and I think the outcome of that is radical personal responsibility, which alters, you know, your personal relationships to your community, to society at large. And that, I think, will lead to boring. <laughs> because... Because when we were, like, I've been on both extremes, I feel like. I was very set in my ways. I chased down people who thought that the world was flat because it was like, are you stupid, right? we really attacking other people's worldview and opinions mm -hmm. because of my own strong opinions, right? But then I went on to the hero's journey, and as, you know, talking to Ben, talking to George, talking to any, everyone, it seems like it is a destination, of, destination being a very loose term here, but... It's very anchored in, in love, understanding, self 
accountability and compassion and just the harmonization of more cooperation of the planet, right? So if everyone, and I just say this from a personal point of view, if, if everyone thought like me mm-hmm. and I was able to create anything, at some point I would have run out of things to create. Everyone had the same thoughts as me, so I wouldn't have anyone to kind of spar with. And everyone was just sitting there someday, just, all right, so I guess I've fulfilled many meanings of my life. I don't really know what to do now because everyone else has done everything else. I have run out of creativity. This is kind of boring now. You know? Well, I would push back a little bit on that. I think in that instance, we would embrace our one of the fundamental things that is human, which is our our desire to explore. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And 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 so I think if all of a sudden we had the opportunity to sit there and yeah, you can say that you would we would settle a lot of these things and it, it could be boring in some instance, but then all of a sudden that frees up all of this time for us to embrace our explorative processes. And I don't think, you know, I don't think it would end up boring. I think it would actually end up transformative. You know, infinite. What's in the what's in the stars out there? You know? Yeah. Why not go see them? You know, what could we travel the universe? Go, you know, is there different points? What What does a black hole actually look like up close and personal? What sort of effects does that have on consciousness? What sort, you know, I think, you know, we would have the ability to then go explore these these grander cosmic kind of questions. Yeah. Or I just I just want to clarify your point of view about something, Tor. The world is not flat. I understand that, but but it was created six thousand years ago, right? Trying <laughs> <laughs> to understand where you're coming from. No, see, that's my thing. Like when people are so narrow-minded that they don't see the whole everything that we have achieved as humans, right? That is very easily. I mean, I, I usually just saw the moon and just don't you see that thing that it follows the same physics as everything else here? It should kind of dispute the entire. Mm-hmm. thing the point because i'm also um yeah i didn't respect other people's opinion basically before i was a douchebag that's basically the whole point <laughs> well, of- well, some aren't <laughs> worth respecting <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I agree you know what's with ben. interesting oh so go ahead no i agree with ben because i just saw this documentary on netflix that where I haven't actually seen the entire thing, but the infinity, when you start to go into infinity, what is behind it? And if we are the creators of the universe as we are focusing and observing it and then just creating more of the universe and all that, all the theories, basically, taking in interstellar and how black holes are created and how we are nothing but a subatomic quantum fluctuation of particles in the vacuum on a Planck scale and everything, right? Then at some point we will go into the infinite possibilities of just creating things that I cannot even start to conceive at the moment of what we know about the known universe. Mm. That, yeah, that's an exciting thought. <laughs> that was an interesting trait to go down. It is. <laughs> and here I was yeah. going to talk about Republicans and conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> but you know something kind of freaky in this um, uh, little journey I've been on to fi- uh, figure out and hear what people have to say about the free will question. The the two factions that I was surprised are the most zealous free will advocates 
although now that I realize it's like, oh, yeah, of course, is that Judeo-Christian faction that I was talking about, Jason, that's the, 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 because God created the world, because he gave us free will, and because we have to learn the lessons we have to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The other constituency that I'm not good bedfellows with is conservative politicians and conservative philosophy. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the root of it there is that we are autonomous individuals who have free choice and that free markets are based on rational decisions and that ultimately uh, all of those rational decisions by free uh, individuals uh, uh, will is the best system there is and that creativity, the Bill Gates and all that stuff comes from this, this vat of freedom and a system which rewards freedom, the capitalist system. So and conservatives don't like too many restraints on that system, and many of those restraints seem to benefit them. Uh, so one can question whether even we have free markets. That's that's a whole other question. But the but the but the but the interesting let's call it freaky since we're having a psychedelic conversation as well. Thing is that the 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 weird alliance of the, the sort of rational free willish people, if you will, is 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 a a strong religious movement and a strong conservative movement. Pretty strange bedfellows, I have to tell you. But not that strange at all, David, because I grew up in that evangelical free will, very religious and very kind of low grade nationalism, especially what we see happening now. These two things have been married for, you know, mm. the last 30 years in many ways uh, that mm. in the way that it's risen uh, of this religion and free will and freedom. And man, you used to see it erupting right now out of certain factions of christianity it is it's it's weird and sometimes disgusting but like yeah it's a it's a crazy thing that's beginning to, to really take hold around some of these ideas i don't know i i hear you and i agree with you i just look at donald trump and i don't think of freedom and liberation and uh, creativity i don't know why well, that's the, the, the argument here is within these religious systems those people do not live a life of freedom at all like that's the that, that's the great con is like oh you'll have free will but you're not you're not free to really be a sovereign human being in whatever way we want to look at freedom it's it's a way of control and power at the end of the day there's nothing to do with real free will right they're surrendering or surrendering themselves to a huge authority about how the world works and uh... and that's the marriage of determinism and the power structure that upholds this kind of idea of free will but at its core does not actually live it out in the same way that the mm -hmm. determinants at mm -hmm. core do not live it out. Both of these people are basically hypocrites driving power because this is a great way to control the mass system. I think mm -hmm. they're separate, but the reality is they're believing the same shit. Anyone <laughs> here familiar with Nagamani? On this side, it's all being controlled and it's powerful. Exactly. Anyone here know about the Nagamati library and stuff? I've heard yeah. about it, but I, I'm not real familiar with it. It's basically the, the gospel, the chapter, as far as my understanding. The, the chapter that basically takes the power of the Bible from the Bible. It was discovered in 1947, I think, in a cave in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And right now it is on a display in the Egyptian some, some, some museum. And it says that in order for you to have your dreams or your prayers answered, 
you shall view the thing that you want as if it's already happened and feel grateful for already achieving it. And this is kind of going into how indigenous people created rain. We were talking about this earlier, Ben, like the whole rain dance and all that stuff. They just felt being there and create a visualization and meditation, law of attraction, manifestation, all of these things. That little snippet of a Bible removed by Emperor Constantine for a 400 AD kind of took the entire power of the individual as the creator, put that into the book, and then you had the control system. Like, because now it was up to the book and the creator of the book, which was this omnipotent being who wrote a book, right? All these things that just blew my mind. And then because religion, have anyone read the um, Immortality Key, The Secret Religion with No Name, Brian Moore Rescue? Yep. Yeah. Blew my mind because then it, it's documented how Christianity, in particular the Vatican, had been prosecuting psychedelics from the illusion mysteries way back when, when hmm. Demeter and all these people were the hmm. main character. And you went to these ceremonies to die before you died so that you can live forever and basically be limitless. And like, yeah. I think that people just need to understand that things go way beyond the documentation that they prescribe their life to. Mm -hmm. If they open their mind to religion, science, being mm -hmm. kind of the same thing, just being communicated at different times of knowledge and awareness in history, like show a Boeing 747 to a person 2,000 years ago, it would probably not be the same description that we would give it today. Right? And then just seeing how all of these things are just the same concept being communicated from different angles of awareness, psychedelics being one of the huge ones that just that's, think about that you know yeah, it all goes back to psychedelics all the things that we've talked about today is like well, psychedelics, psychedelics <laughs> it's amazing it reminds me of a, a line I like to use sometimes it's like, your reality is reality, even though it's not reality in actuality you know, when it gets back to this idea of visualization and seeing the world the way you want it to be and try to tr and almost creating your own life through Paradise. it you know yeah. yeah it's interesting to think about mm -hmm. it from that angle and yeah. maybe that maybe maybe it's this type of imagination that is needed for us to get away from where we are maybe all these things we're talking about right now is what we need in order to to build like a parallel structure for us to move mm -hmm. forward from this giant shitstorm that we're in you know david we've been talking quite a bit um on some other podcasts about building parallel structures and you know ben ben has come up with uh he's got like what he calls the terra libre project and we're we've been exploring different ways to make your way in this world via through financial vehicles and things um right like i, I think that that's the only way out of this thing right what, what is your take on parallel structures david Well, I wanted to, before I answer yeah. that, can I go back to something? Of course. Before of course. Said? I, I, I just, and I say this with total respect, not saying fun of, making fun of what you said, because uh, I agree with the point of view about that scripture and so forth, but it doesn't always work. When I was an early teenager, I really tried hard to believe I was Hugh Hefner, and I really tried to visualize <laughs> everything about it, you know, the women chateau and the whole thing it didn't work I'm but not what actions did you take to actually make it work i'm sorry say again what actions did you implement we talked about this if you have implementation if i had a thought i want to be hugh hefner i can't be hugh hefner of course but i can be someone 
in the same kind of area. And then if people like me more than Hugh Hefner, then I could create something of a parallel kind of industry. But then I had to act on the thoughts that I saw and not just wait for it to be given. I see. Well, nobody told me when I was 13 that I could act on that kind of thing. Exactly. And frankly, I'm not sure what it, it would have entailed. <laughs> my my five-year-old daughter is actually doing this like a champ to the point where my five-year-old daughter is the reason that me, my ex, my current girlfriend, and my two children from those two people are now talking about celebrating Christmas together. Like a completely limitless kind of relationship and everything. Because my daughter had that limitless mm -hmm. way of thinking and acting on it. Actually speaking her, mm -hmm. her reality to other people so that they can see that mm -hmm. same vision and move towards it. You know what I mean? Instead of just waiting for it to happen, she knows that, well, mm -hmm. if I'm cold, I'm going to build a damn fire. I just have to teach her how to use the, the axe and stuff first. No, that's a good point. You have to take action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that and was in the book too, right? It wasn't just concentrate and be grateful as if it happened and pictures that it ha happened was the book also that scripture saying and you have to that's not enough because a lot of the new age folk say the uh the the, the first part the stuff that mm. you said and very few of them go into oh actually there's there's sweat and blood too by the way it's not just realizing yeah. and all that did was that part of it in the in the scripture you're talking about that depends on how you view it, because we were talking about this earlier, like, uh, let's say, relative real time dealing with things where you actually ahead of real time. And how does that work? So it's like we talked about where are your thoughts when you're not thinking of them. So we went down to the subatomic quantum fluctuations, basically the smallest of the small. If you have a thought that comes from the essence of the universe and you see what you want so clearly that it is a picture in your mind that you can emotionally attach some something too you know, like you feel grateful and excited to see the vision in your mind and then do things from that emotional state of belief or power mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. fulfillment mm -hmm. and then you do that energy mm -hmm. attracting more of the same mm -hmm. you start to put things into motion that is going to create those physical things in the in the world we know because now mm -hmm. those things are kind of out there to mm -hmm. to yeah to manifest to, to become mm -hmm. tangible but then irregardless regardless of time and depending on you actually accepting that it's possible and taking action on what you want to do, also going through the uncomfortable stage of it, because it sucks sometimes to do things that is hard, but being able to take up the battle. And then, as Terra Libra, by the way, sounds amazing, because my, my thing is the FML project. It's fuck my life, but fuck my life has three levels. It's fuck my life, I'm stuck, Everyone's everything's happening to me, and it's fuck. My life, what is quantum entanglement? I learned something new that opened my mind. And then you come to a place where it's like, mm -hmm. fuck my life, everything is limitless. But then the FML project is not just fuck my life, it's also fulfillment, motivation, and love. Mm -hmm. If you ask my five-year-old what is the pow most powerful force in the universe, she will say, Duh, don't you know, is love. Because mm -hmm. then you're on a high frequency that's going to attract more of that. Mm -hmm. And then, then I think that everything can shift and if we talk about the whole rain how to create rain something that is so out of our control if we see that we are nothing but the transmutation like we are the receivers and the transmitters of the energy that is around us all the time then we can kind of put signatures and communication into those atoms and frequencies all around us which could theoretically impact the heavens above and, and the weather so but then, yeah oh, no, 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 that 
that was basically the point. I wanted to ask you about the quantum part of it because um, I evidently missed some discussion, but I, I had to do a lot of reading, whether I liked it or not, and I really did like it in quantum science over the past year or so to, you know, or more to to have to understand how it, whether it was relevant to the free will question and to what extent and yeah. and all of that. So I had to pretty much steep myself in it. So I was wondering what how that fit into the philosophy that you were just talking about. See, that's where I'm also the rest of it. Yeah. Um, well, if quantum is the limitless possibilities of everything and quantum is the smallest of the small and we can see ourselves as being part of that and all that stuff, then the quantum physics part of it came from me trying to because I also had that same fascination by reading books on psychology in a new way, seeing things as unity and being everything and being so small and everywhere that it can impact larger things incrementally i guess but yeah i'm still trying to learn how to make sense of it but quantum physics being the it ties into everything as far as i see it everything in emotions how emotions speak to to the things we want how our psychology is based on how we feel and think and the things that we think is based on the subatomic particles and all that stuff. everything I'm not sure how to answer the question even, but Ben is nodding. Am I on this, this path? You had mentioned entanglement uh, yeah. specifically. What, what were you thinking when you mentioned entanglement? That everything is one and that you are me as much as I am you and that particles are connected mm -hmm. on that level, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, good. That's a, that's a, now I understand. Yeah. yeah. There certainly is a, is a weird connection in quantum entanglement that nobody really quite understands. Exactly. And it, it kind of, then we talk about law of attraction and manifestation and how people are subscribing a lot of woo-woo to that. But if you look at it as not just that is a topic, you look at that, astrology, geology, biology, all the things that we have in separate boxes and you see that as one and just try to communicate that through the understanding of more than one topic. Like Charlie, um, no, I, I can't forget. I forget his name, but he's the most wealthy person in the world, right? Uh, said that knowledge compounds. So the more you learn about one topic, you're going to increase your understanding of something else, and the more you're on that path, you're just going to see things differently. Paradigms are going to shift incrementally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm doing a I lot heard, of things with my hands. I heard some interesting <laughs> stuff on like the quantum area. Like uh, I was reading this this book on behavior. And they talked about a, a biological child and the adult. They have what they call mirror neurons. And yeah. so that's how they learn so much. And it, it, that seems like entanglement to me. Like if, if, if you and I have mirror neurons and I can just look at your face as my dad and know what you mean, like that's a form of communication in, a, in like a quantum realm, it seems like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's this idea of mirror neurons and being able to look at someone and know what they mean because mm -hmm. you're part of the same individual like that that's like a whole nother world of communication that no one ever talks about or a language no one talks about yeah because i think that is also the emotional thing i think that when you were born you are a blank slate and people can put their bullshit on you as much as they want some people choose to just form them into this box right mm -hmm. some people like to raise their kids limitless so that they know that there's infinite possibilities but when you get born you are more or less coming from the same thing that created you and you're basically basically created a of the same things, right? So mm -hmm. let's just say that then you have this telepathic communication. You're literally on the same resonance, the same frequency as the person. So 
you are connected on more than the physical level. Because I'm saying this, mm -hmm. as me and my girlfriend have problems, I start to sniff her thoughts, which is weird. But I started to feel like I knew what she was thinking. And then it was like, are you... Because I started to experiment. And they didn't say, are you thinking this? You should think that. I started to sense things that I felt didn't come from me. And then I started to feel things that not necessarily came from me. So I started to put, look at her and just, are you feeling kind of like this now? She's like, yeah, well, how do you know? Well, I, I don't know. And then I started to ask questions into that. And it seems like we had grown to such a like mind that we were on the same frequency and I was literally communicating with her. And then I was trying this in different states. I was sitting in a meditative state as she was doing a psychedelic experience. Now, when I was doing a psychedelic experience, I heard a melody from the universe that I had to learn the guitar to kind of communicate. And I was like, what the heck? That came from somewhere. So I was sitting there focusing on almost talking to her. And she popped out of that experience in total silence saying, was that you? And I asked, what? What, what was, was what me? And she, then she hums the, the actual melody that I had heard from somewhere beyond me and tried to communicate into this world, but I had never shared it with her. And then that kind of talk said that there was something more. And then you have that, you know, you're, you're talking to the same thing. You're communicating on a different level, more than what we are used to, to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard the thing that you talked about, um, the, the mirror kind of a thing. I don't know. I don't know um, anything about that. Um, but a lot in that. You, you, some of this you can explain in yeah. terms of science, physical science. Yeah. Um, and some you can't. Noam Chomsky, again, it's funny I'm citing him twice because he's really known for his radical politics, but that's really not what I'm citing him for on either occasion. His theory of language is that we are born with the innate sense of language. You can't teach it. You start to say a word and somebody, they already have the capacity. An infant has the capacity, the innate capacity developed through evolution and it's our biological heritage and it has to do with the structure of our bodies and our brains and all. But, but you don't really teach language. You sort of bring out a facility that, that, that is already in the structure of the mind and the consciousness and the body. Um, and I was uh, you reminded me of that, uh, about talking about the mirror thing, because you can talk about that without having to go to mirrors. I mean, we're, we're, we're part of a culture and we are interrelated. And there's a strange intuitive sense of interrelatedness that Tor is talking about. And, um, and quantum science certainly brings to the table the idea relevant to the free will question, that it seems like there's something going on that cannot be explained by causation. There's non-physical connections. Well, what the heck is that about? Science doesn't like that kind of stuff very well. And Einstein hated it and said it just can't be. He called it uh, famously spooky action at a distance. The idea that uh, things can be connected that have no physical basis or no source of being connected. And that's the quantum entanglement idea. Uh, the tour yeah. that you were referring to. There's no basis to connect these things because they're gal they can be galaxies apart or yeah. 10 million galaxies apart. And if you do one thing over here, it corresponds to something over there and it defies all causation. Now, some people try and explain it in a causal way, but of course, like everything else in quantum physics, nobody agrees on anything. But um, it does seem to be 
uh, an indication that causation isn't the only thing that's going on, and that that that's something else that uh, determinists have to deal with. And you're taking it to another level of consciousness and relations and so forth, and uh, I think that's a good place to go because you're you're you're, you're 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 tapping into the same connectedness yeah. that is mysterious that Einstein called spooky action talking about you know physics uh, about that you just said that twice can I just intersect something did you do you know yeah. when uh, Nomsky has his birthday uh, Chomsky Nomsky was it Nomsky? No. Chomsky I, I no, just had Chomsky. someone no, I, I don't know his birthday. Okay, no, just sorry though, because someone wrote right, in the was chat. Was he breaking he had... that I didn't send him a present this year? Was he? <laughs> he said that he had his birthday yesterday. It was like synchronicities. You just mentioned his name twice, but then if it's not Nomsky, then it might be another person. Did I miss his birthday? I may have missed him both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, synchronicities jumped into mine. Nomsky's uh, birthday was no was December seventh. So yes, it was yesterday. Now was, was it Nomsky? Well, Nomsky. Nomsky or Chomsky, they're often confused. Yeah, because here it says Nomsky. Who's Nomsky? I don't know. <laughs> I, hope you guys, I don't know who Nomsky and, and is. And how long has he been missing? <laughs> I, he's on the back of my milk carton, so it's been a little while. <laughs> you know what? I just read um, a new article that talked about uh, breaking down quarks into an even smaller, mm. smaller uh, oh, unit. And they, they were, this story went on to talk about how if there String is theory. this, yeah, what well, there's this, no, it actually goes back to the ether, like the alchemists back in the day. And they were talking about how some of what the alchemists were using as ether, like there's this black liquid light that connects everything. It's kind of esoteric, but you know, it, this idea of dark matter being the ether. Might that be the scary action at a distance that Einstein was talking about? I mean, it's it's just words or whatever, but it just mm -hmm. seems to me like there is, you know, maybe these guys were onto something 400 years ago. You know, this idea yeah. of the ether, this idea yeah. of a connection, we're all connected. And then yeah. if you think about how, like, just, just look at the way in which we have gone to specialization. Like, you know, you have a specialist for your toe, a specialist for your knee, and it's almost like these specialists don't know what the other professionals in medicine are doing. The same thing I think holds for science as a whole and our community as a whole. Mm -hmm. We've become so specialized, mm -hmm. we're not even speaking the same language. So you know, maybe there is I, something to this connections. So I have a specialist for my specialists. <laughs> I mean, they, they drove me to it. I mean, there was no other way. I have specific so, things that relates to this, actually. Michelson and Morley, they tried to, to prove the existence of ether in the 1800s. They weren't able with that technology. So they just said, no, this is not possible. We're going to put this in the drawer and forget it forever. But, you know, chi, ka, ether, god, this is where the religious structures just crumbles because we were not able to see that then. But then the Copenhagen double slit experiment proved that there is a field, something there, that we can measure the, the drag of a particle and we can start to see things different. So I think that, yes, the ether definitely is the thing that they have tried to communicate over eons and now we're just able to see that with the technology that we created because as you said looking for something small that's where the theory comes in that if we are focusing on that and looking for something we are going to find it because we're going to develop methods and, and technology to do so are we then creating the universe in the micro and are we then doing the same thing in the macro as we are looking into the limits of everything Ben is agreeing. <laughs> well, 
so you know we were talking a little bit about this earlier in a different podcast but this is where my my take on the the inf information theory comes in exactly. there's a vast interconnectedness to everything and if we're we're talking layers we have you know the atomic the subatomic or we're talking about all these quantum fluctuations and blah 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 but where the the quantum fluctuations come from exactly. and that's what i like to describe as the basically the field of information and and that information is that vast interconnectedness, the ether that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, to, the spooky action at a distance, I think I've been able to describe it mechanistically through uh, my efforts in, in this research over the years. Yeah, One or I, two scientific uh, thoughts about from, from the history of science I've been reviewing. We have to pick a uh, something other than the ether, uh, in a sense. I know what you mean by it, but the ether has been pretty much discredited. Michelson Morley was the first one to do it, and then relativity theory overthrew it and said it wasn't necessary. There didn't need to be a, a physical medium in which light traveled through. That's that, that that's what they were trying to figure out. How did light travel when there was no there's no medium for it. Everything, waves, ocean waves, yeah. it's got to be water, a medium, everything, air, your voice, sound waves has to have a medium. So um, the ether is considered in the scientific stuff to not, to not be around anymore. That's not to say that the connections that you're talking about in, in a, a larger way, I just wanted to um, throw a little history at you to say that when you're talking to scientists or someone who's somewhat versed in it um ether is is not the best word to use in the scientific community that may sound like a nitpick and i i'm sorry well, there but i take it all back but, no, but that's but that's why i dub it that's why i dub it information that's why i, see I think it's i think it's a much more applicable yes, yes, uh, way yes. to describe this yes. um and you know this that field of information and everything's emitting information everything in motion is generating waves it's all putting it out there that and it's interacting with that field and that and those interactions just like uh, a wave in a wave pool right they've you know there's this really cool video where they have a spike wave that happens by directly correlating a couple different mechanistic movements in the water all of a sudden you get this massive spike that goes 40 50 meters in the air mm -hmm. and from you know just two three foot waves interacting mm -hmm. at a very precise way um and you know we have this like the double slit experiment is all about wave cancelization and you know and and so we have the we have the the kind of terminology uh, from a you know a as above so below perspective to kind of look at this and then so i took that to well how do you articulate it better than something of the ether and that's mm -hmm. where i have gone into information theory mm. both of you SLSA. what sorry SLSA. You you're not you're not going to find it yet they're still writing it into psychology which is a very interesting journey but it's the same thing it's like how do you define truth what is truth what is reality and where are your thoughts when you're not thinking of them and how can we kind of communicate what that is but yeah in the information field it's like psychedelics just taught the truth and everything makes sense when people are communicating what you felt you know and then communicating what that feeling is is very hard but being that feeling is everything and you and people have been trying to explain it for so long so it's kind of lost in translation across the eons that we've tried to figure it out yeah 
and I think we're we're getting progressively better at articulating yeah. those mechanisms, right? I think and so. I too. think, and I think that's what this process is: is mm-hmm. us, you know, being able to articulate these this this fundamental aspect of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yeah, you know, the spooky action at a distance was Einstein's kind of well, holy crap, this is what the math does, and this seems to work. Uh, but I can't explain it in the framework that I have built through this relativistic, uh, you know, perception of, of reality. Uh, and so we're just, this is the next iteration of that. Um, you know, yeah. maybe information isn't the most proper way to articulate it. But in looking at the world, you know, that's kind of how we, that's kind of how all of this works, right? You know, us having this conversation right now is ones and zeros on a computer chip going through error correction and 13 layers of different programming languages in order for us to have a real-time conversation with each other. That's information being processed around in a very specific way to enable an emergent process. And then is arrogant of us to think that we can create that, but we cannot be that. I don't know if arrogance is the right term, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We can create yeah. a TV that can take mm-hmm. a signal that is wireless from space mm-hmm. and transmute that into audio and video, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. we're not able to do that same thing ourselves with the brains mm-hmm. that is the most complex system mm-hmm. in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got to tell that to my iPhone that it's ones and zeros because I have to reboot it all the time. It's coming up with something besides one and zeros. Let me well, tell you. Well- that's planned obsolescence. I think that yes. gets into a different thing. Yes, <laughs> that, that's indeed. The human, indeed. Yeah. You ever think of the chart that's on Apple's wall? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this in October, and we're gonna hold that back till January, and that's really oh, cool. Yeah. And you can do it, but you know, we got to have that announcement in April. Can you imagine what's on their wall? Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. You want to uh, talk for a second about the double slit experiment because both of you have mentioned it, and um, it's just mm. kind of fun if you want to kind of have a review of it or something. Changed my reality. I mean, it was, well, it it may change your reality again. Yeah. (laughs) The the main thing that came out of it was that in a big picture sense is that reality seems to be a wave and a particle. And that's just not possible in a classical sense because waves propagate and they're spread out and they have dips and troughs and all that kind of stuff. And a particle is very BB-like and concentrated and a point basically. And they, they saw that reality was behaving both ways. How they did that is they had these two slits in a screen. They had a back screen that they would land on. And they would shoot a stream of particles, little BB bullet particles, at the double slit screen. And when nobody was looking at it, there was a wave pattern formed on the back of the screen of alternating bands of density, which is how a wave would land because in going through the screens, waves would start to cross each other and there would be dips and troughs and they would you know, magnify each other and then they would splotch as, a, as, as the dips and troughs, which becomes the wave pattern. So it looked like a wave went through the screen when you looked at the back, but wait a second, they were shooting particles through a stream, these BBs, and that was freaky. So then they put something on there, a meter to measure what was happening at the slits, what, what was going on? How could a wave be created since particles gotta go through one slit they're just a bullet they can't go through two slits they can't interfere with each other so how the hell could there be a wave back there mm-hmm. when they started when they would put a monitor on the, the the slits one or the other or both uh all of a sudden the wave disappeared mm-hmm. and you got a bunch of particles landing as clumps off of the uh slits that they went through 
Well, what the hell is that about? Now all of a sudden reality is doing some weird stuff. It's, it's not only particles seem to be turning into waves and, it, and, and created by interference that the particles can't do. But then when you look at them, they become particles. If you don't look yeah. at them, they stay like waves. So that was sort of the fundamental mystery of what the hell is going on here. Yeah. And then to, to make it a little bit more complicated, they added, uh, there's a couple permutations of it, is that they could look at the particles after it went through the screen, after the point where a wave had to form or not form. Okay. And if they looked at it, it would, it would land, the particles would land as particles in particle clumps. So it's like, wait a second. It's already gone through the screen. If we don't look, it's going to be a wave and we look, it's going to be a particle, but the screen was prior and the screen is the only place where waves can be created. So what the hell is going on here? And most of quantum mechanics is about that. I mean, uh, famous uh, physicist Richard Feynman said that the double slit experiment is the heart of quantum mechanics. Hmm. And it sort of div ultimately divided reality into what's going on before we look and that's described as a wave function and uh, what's happening when we do look and then mm. one of any number of probabilities that are calculated by the wave function manifest. What, what's happening when there's this conversion and how does observation, then that gets into the whole mess. And I've concluded after doing a lot of reading that everybody disagrees about it. Nobody has an answer. They know how to do the science and the math, but it's how do you interpret it? I and think I have a pretty good different interpretation. But I wanted to throw that out there. Oh, one other one. Let me give you one other permutation that's kind of fun on the double slit experiment. So they, it's called the quantum eraser effect. So they shoot the BBs at the double screens. They go out the other side uh, in the back. They come out the back and they're split by a beam splitter. So one goes straight and one goes down another path. And when they're measured at the the first, look called the first junction, the beam, the beam splitter. They're going to look like particles because we're looking at them, right? Mm -hmm. So they send them down another path. There's just half of them down another path. And they have a scrambler at the other half. So before that other half lands on the screen, they scramble the information that the first station had about their trajectories and where they were going, the looking, the measurement. Mm -hmm. yep, so they destroy the information. And then afterwards is a screen that they ultimately land on. Well, when you destroy the information, they land as waves again. Yeah. So now they were seen as particles because we were looking over here. And again, this is after the point where any wave can be created as far as classical physics goes. It's already past the screens. There's either interference or there isn't under classical rules. We watch it at a station here. They watch it. Uh, one goes and lands as straight and lands as particles because that's what they are when you watch it. The other half sent down here and the information is scrambled, goes into some kind of prism where you can't tell where the paths were coming out because it just, whatever the device is, scrambles them. So it's like we're not looking again yeah. and then it lands as waves. So what the fuck is that, right? Particles go in, uh, they're observed, they become, they're, they're particles, that's after the point of no return for the wave creation. But when you stop looking by scrambling the information and then they land without anybody knowing what the paths were that they took, which is observation of the looking, mm. they're waves again. I so, learned, I experienced this before I learned it. 
but we had this talk earlier today actually as well i have this very simplified without going into the whole definition of sls which is just harmony basically uh when i was sitting in meditation i viewed myself as a particle when i popped out and was able to see things that was not in my immediate area i was able to go out of where i was meditating look down upon myself meditating and then see a different world in meditation so my consciousness escaped my body we talked about the what happens when you push the observer out of the equation that if you're a particle once you meditate you become a wave when you pop out you become something different you connect to the to the field of information basically you become the field of information because you now you've lost awareness of whatever vessel you are situated in and then we start to talk about where are your thoughts when you're not thinking of them and how this is also something that it's everywhere limitless until you focus on them and then it becomes something that you can act upon so it's like laugh because people ask me where where are my thoughts when i am thinking them you know, yeah exactly that's different problem yeah my my whole thing my my entire quote unquote career and journey has been the journey of the thought from the feel of information and how that is interacting with the physical world using things like electromagnetism and quantum uh, entanglement and quantum theory and like this information theory sls uh, law of attraction energy attracting more of the same all of these things and also how our bodies are optimized to communicate it with new mirror neurons our brain neurons on the heart and how the heart is basically a separate system yet working in unison with the brain and how we are feeling the world actively creating more of it as we are feeling and going towards it how we are communicating it has been my entire essence of living lately but the the copenhagen double slate experiment kind of communicated what i was feeling to a point where i was like oh my god this is it now i can learn more and then you know as we said knowledge compounds i just continue to see the world in that perspective and then is i know that see even if we talk about it from different angles we are talking about the same thing the same understanding which is fascinating to me because that to me speaks of some relative truth it sounds to me like the particle and the wave are both happening simultaneously but you can only be aware of one at a time yeah that, that is, is a huge yeah. subject of dispute so, in physics superposition, <laughs> right? but, but but yeah there's a lot of people that interpret that way and just want to superposition. Right. I would I would call those people accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, they just did another version of the school of accuracy study. of quantum physics, the accurate school of quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> are you guys yeah. familiar with the The other the, guys are going to get mad at you for that. <laughs> are you but familiar that's okay with if you don't miss their birthday like I did. <laughs> Nomsky, watch out for him. Nomsky. <laughs> Are you familiar with the double slit experiment that they did on uh, neutrinos? No. This is just recently done. Um, I, I pulled up the paper here. Uh, I'll just read kind of the conclusion of it. And it says, uh, the results show that individual particles experience a specific fraction of the magnetic field applied in one of their the paths, indicating that a fraction or even a multiple of that uh, in each particle was present. So basically what they did in that double slit experiment is they created a magnetic field in one of the slits. Mm -hmm. And then as the neutrinos passed through, um, each the other neutrino that wasn't subjected to the magnetic field had experienced a fraction of that magnetic field and it adjusted its spin 
or actually a multiple of that magnetic field. Um, and they were able to detect the differences uh, in the spin. So what was the, um, wow, was there a new principle that was discovered from this or was this well, a, a, well, a, so a twist at the, the end of Right, so the twist is that, you know, um, and it goes, at the end it basically says, uh, the obtained path presence is not a statistical average, but applies to each individual neutrino. And so it's basically kind of a kind of a take on, you know, entanglement in, in a way. And that these neutrinos were experiencing a form of entanglement as they passed through you know, the double slit experiment. It blows my mind, Bill. Yeah, it is blowing my mind. Gentlemen, my my wife tells me it's time to go. And I'm going to be a double split experiment if I don't leave. So. <laughs> I and can't be, tell you. You'll be entangled in a lot of trouble. You better believe it. You better believe it. This is it's such a fun conversation. I'm, I'm so thankful to every one of you for taking a few moments to participate. I, I really, really enjoy it. And it, believe it or not, it makes me get through my week talking to people and learning things. So before I go, I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to talk about um, – I mean, let me just start over here with Jason, and I'll go around the horn here. Jason, what do you got coming up? Um, where can people find you, and what are you excited about? Yeah, people can check me out on Experience Integration. Um, my partner and I have our podcast, Telling Secrets, which we're getting ready to land the plane on for season one, which is basically this year of podcasting. So we're excited about that. Um, and, yeah, things coming up, doing uh, some good stuff coming out, getting ready to happen with Dad Balls. So really excited about what's coming up there and tour you can expect to be hearing from me soon my friend look forward nice. to uh, diving into some stuff so thank you guys nice thank you jason tour what um what do you got coming up where can people find you and what are you excited about I'm working on the bfml project and trying to create a more tangible thing i'm creating valhalla a human development system that is or center that is based in norse archaeology but taking in these understandings that we have and trying to create something of a personal development center but for that to happen, I have challenge.torsapola.com, which is 100-day challenge to find your authentic truth so that we can actually act upon this and try to see the, the principles that is learned how to be taught as we go. Uh, I also have a podcast called The Shift that has been dormant for years. So I thank you all for the inspiration to start using that again. And that's it. What I'm excited about is life and forging my own legacy through the limitless possibilities of cosmocentric worldviews. <laughs> love it. Love it. Ben, Mr. Wizard, what, where can people find you? What do you got coming up and what are you excited about? It uh, can be found on BenjaminCGeorge.com, uh, the No Absolutes podcast, uh, same as the name of the book here. A uh, lot of stuff coming up. Uh, great podcasts. Uh, and also a lot of stuff dropping with the Terry Liebert project here pretty quick. So that's exciting. We're going to talk about that. that yeah. yeah, we need to talk about that. But uh, definitely looking forward to more of these conversations, man. These are moving the needle forward. Yeah, I really enjoy them. David, thanks so much for being here. What, um, Where can people find you? What do you got coming up, and what are you excited about? Well, the big thing is I have a, a uh, illustrated version of the book coming out. Um, with a fantastic illustrator who did all kinds of robots and things and entanglements, got this robot flipping a coin. And 
huge coin and beautifully from the perspective and everything. So I'm going to come out with a uh, illustrated uh, version of that. And I think it's pretty cool. Um, the website is biochemicalrobots.com. And the uh, Gmail email that anyone can reach me at is biochemicalrobots at gmail.com. The big excitement, I think, for me is the book and um, it's uh, how it's sort of laid out. It's a, it's a weird amalgam of sort of a highbrow scientific, academic, complicated thing that I'm presenting in a, because I'm not a mathematician, I'm presenting it in a very, I think, a very accessible way with, with sort of cartoon robots. <laughs> so it's a, it's a blend of sort of a, a, a tough highbrow subject in sort of a fun cartoon form if that makes any sense. And so um, I don't know if anyone's done quite that kind of a thing. And, um, but I, I, I think it, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but more the artists, I think it came out really well. So I'm looking forward to releasing that on Amazon and hopefully a couple weeks, month, month at the worst. Yeah. I think it's going to be a huge success and everybody here uh, has got their own podcast, so I think we could all amplify it. If you and I think all of us have some pretty unique questions, cool. we would love to talk to you. I bet you everybody on this panel would love to have you on their specific podcast and pick your brain oh, about thanks. certain things. So that would um, be fun. That would be fun. I could show some uh, some of the illustrations and things and explain them. Um, that'd be kind of fun because uh, I'm looking at them now, all the robots on the side of my computer, and going, "Hey, that's cool. What's that about? Oh, it's my book." <laughs> <laughs> all right well ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for uh, being part of the podcast everybody out there who's commenting and uh, watching or listening to it thanks again reach out i'm gonna put everybody's stuff in the show notes for the podcast please reach out to everyone if you have any questions or you have any ideas reach out to us we had a great time today and that's all we got for the psychedelic round table ladies and gentlemen i will talk to everyone soon aloha nice meeting you all take care Aloha. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.